0: Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface.
1: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about when you should capitalize job titles, a meaty middle about the difference between the abbreviations IE and EG, and a tidbit about sentence diagramming. And now, on to our quick and dirty tip. Capitalizing job titles can be tricky because they aren't always capitalized, but it seems like a lot of people want to see their titles capitalized, whether they should be or not. I'm talking about titles such as vice president, sales director, chairperson, mayor, and emperor. In general, titles that come before names are capitalized, and titles that come after names are lowercase. The thing you have to figure out is whether the word is part of a name unit in an official title, in which case it's capitalized, or if it's just describing someone's role, in which case it's lowercase. For example, let's imagine that Ardvark is class president. He's very responsible. If you write, We invited President Ardvark to dinner, you capitalize president because it's his official title and it's right before his name. But if you write, Ardvark, the class president, came to dinner, president is lowercase because it's after his name and it's just descriptive. You're describing his role instead of using president as his official title. And if there's no name, the title is usually lowercase. For example, if you write, the president came to dinner, president is lowercase. Sometimes, a title may come directly before the name, but still be lowercase because it's simply describing someone's role. For example, if you write, Our class president, Ardvark Blueback came over for dinner. President is lowercase, even though it's right before his name. And that could be a trivia question someday. What is Aardvark's last name? There are some exceptions, though. For example, a reader named Leah wrote, I just realized that I've been unconsciously capitalizing job titles when putting them in table format. Have I been doing it wrong? No, Leah hasn't been doing it wrong. Job titles are often capitalized when you have a list of people with their titles, such as when names are listed in event programs, in a list of donors, or in tables. Finally, we have what I call the boss exception. The Chicago Manual of Style says it like this— quote, exceptions may be called for in other contexts for reasons of courtesy or diplomacy, unquote. The way I say it is if your bosses want their titles capitalized and don't like to be corrected, it's usually best to just capitalize the darn titles. It's a relatively common problem, and it seems wise to avoid annoying your boss over a small matter. Pick your battles, people. And that's your quick and dirty tip— capitalize job titles when they come before a name and are an official title, and lowercase job titles when they come after a name or are merely descriptive, but you can also capitalize titles when you have a list of names, or if it'll make someone angry or offended if you don't capitalize the title. And now onto those pesky abbreviations, I-E and E-G. They don't mean the same thing. Misusing IE and EG, two common Latin abbreviations, is one of the top five mistakes I used to see when editing technical documents. There's so much confusion that in some drafts I got back from clients, they had actually crossed out the right abbreviation and replaced it with the wrong one. I just had to laugh. IE and EG are both abbreviations for Latin terms. I.E. stands for id est and means roughly that is. E.g. stands for exempli gratia, which means for example. Great, Latin, you're probably thinking. How am I supposed to remember that? By now, I'm sure you know that I'm not going to ask you to remember Latin. I'm going to give you a memory trick. So here's how I remember the difference. Forget about I.E. standing for that is or whatever it really means in Latin. From now on, ie, which starts with an i, means in other words. And eg, which starts with an e, means for example. The i is for in other words, and the e is for example. A few listeners have also written in to say that they remember the difference between ie and eg by imagining that ie means in essence, and eg sounds like egg sample. And those are good memory tricks, too. So now that you have a few tricks for remembering what those abbreviations mean, let's think about how to use them in a sentence. E.G. means for example, so you use it to introduce an example. I like card games—E.G., Bridge, and Crazy 8's. Because I used E.G., you know that I've given you a list of examples of card games that I like. It's not a finite list of all card games I like it's just a few examples. On the other hand, IE means in other words, so you use it to introduce a further clarification. I like to play cards, IE, bridge, and crazy eights. Because I used IE, which introduces a clarification, you know that these are the only card games that I enjoy. Here are two more examples. Squiggly loves watching old cartoons, e.g., DuckTales, and Tugboat Mickey. The words following e.g. are examples, so you know that they're just some of the old cartoons that Squiggly likes. But if you write, Squiggly loves watching Donald Duck's nephews, i.e., Huey, Dewey, and Louie, the words following i.e. provide clarification. They tell you the names of Donald Duck's three nephews. And an important point is that if I've failed and you're still confused about when to use each abbreviation, you can just write out the words, for example, or in other words. There's no rule that says you ever have to use the abbreviations. And you don't italicize I, E, and E, G, even though they are abbreviations for Latin words—they've been used for so long that they're considered a standard part of the English language. Also, remember that there are abbreviations, so there's always a period after each letter. Also, I always put a comma after IE and EG. I've noticed that my spell checker always freaks out and wants me to remove the comma, but five out of six style guides recommend the comma. Seriously, I got so engrossed in the question of whether a comma is required after IE and EG that I made a table for the website summarizing the opinions of six different style guides. You can find that at quickanddirtytips.com. Nevertheless, even though I prefer the comma and have sources to back me up, they almost all use hedge words like usually and preferred. I've also been told that the commas are used less frequently in Britain and the only style guide I found that advised against commas was Fowler's Modern English Usage, which has its roots in British English. The bottom line is that in American English, I recommend using a comma after IE and EG. You could probably make an argument for leaving it out in some cases, but do so at your own risk. My personal role is to use a comma every time. Finally, I tend to reserve ie and eg to introduce parenthetical statements, but it's also perfectly fine to use them in other ways. You can put a comma before them, or if you use them to introduce a complete sentence that follows after another complete sentence, you can put a semicolon before them. You can even put an em dash before ie and eg if you're using them to introduce something dramatic. They're just abbreviations for words, so you can use them in any way. You'd use the words in essence or for example. And those are the basics about IE and EG. Next, here's some fun history about sentence diagramming. If you follow my YouTube channel, you will have noticed that I posted a few simple videos about how to get started with sentence diagramming. The comments I get are funny because one will be someone saying they love diagramming sentences, and the next one will be someone saying they hate diagramming sentences. It seems to bring out strong feelings. And some people have asked whether I think diagramming is an important skill for students to learn, and I actually don't. I just think it's fun, like a different kind of word puzzle. When I retaught myself how to diagram a few years ago to make the Grammar Girl Christmas cards, which have a diagrammed sentence inside, I felt like it did help me think about sentences in a more structured way. For example, I'd notice more that something was an adverb or a prepositional phrase. But a recent article on the National Council of Teachers of English website noted that, "quote, among recent research studies, not one justifies teaching grammar to help students write better," unquote and by grammar, they mean things like identifying parts of sentences, identifying passive sentences, and identifying restrictive and non-restrictive modifiers, and that would include the things you learn to do sentence diagramming. So where did this controversial, almost-a-word-game thing so many of us were taught in schools come from? Sentence diagramming got its start in 1847 when S.W principal of the East Bloomfield Academy, published a practical grammar in which words, phrases, and sentences are classified according to their offices and their various relationships to each other. I've noticed that book titles from the 1800s tend to be a lot longer than most book titles today. That book contained balloon diagrams, the predecessor of today's line diagrams. There were a number of competing diagramming systems in the 1800s and eventually a line diagram system created by Alonzo Reed and Brainerd Kellogg won. They were professors at the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute and published their diagrams in Graded Lessons in English and Higher Lessons in English. The method, which was taught extensively up to the 1970s, is named after the inventors and known as the Reed-Kellogg system, and it made the professors quite wealthy. In the Reed-Kellogg system, nouns, verbs, and direct objects are placed on a horizontal line and separated by short vertical lines. Adjectives, adverbs, and prepositional phrases are placed on horizontal lines extending below the main horizontal line. If you've never seen a sentence diagram before, check out my videos on the Grammar Girl YouTube channel. Chances are you'll either love them or hate them. Finally, thank you this week to the people who showed me where they listen. Sharon listened while taking a rainy day walk on a beautiful trail. Eric listens in his car while tooling around Orlando. Sarah listens in Leavenworth, which is an adorable mountain town in Washington state that looks like a Bavarian village, and my family used to take day trip vacations there when I was a little girl, so I especially loved that photo. Osvaldo listened from his comfy chair in San Francisco. Yoda the Oak on Twitter appears to be a professional photographer, or at least a fantastic photographer, and says he listens driving to and from work by what looks like an English meadow right out of a dramatic movie or art gallery. And David is our second Brit this week. He listens while driving a cab in London. Tolu also listens while driving and walking to class at the University of Memphis. We have lots of drivers this week. Daniel also listens while driving his truck, and his photo of his sound system made me laugh out loud because the title of the episode got truncated. So it was Further Versus Fart instead of Further Versus Farther. And that would have been an entirely different podcast but I think the most impressive photo in this batch was from Michael, who was on Houston Street in New York while listening to the Houston Street segment in the podcast from a couple of weeks ago. Very cool. Thanks again to everyone who shared. If you want to show me where you listen, post on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag #WhereIListen, And if you post it on the Grammar Girl Facebook group, hashtags don't work well, but I'll be really likely to see it there too. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. My updated AP Style Interactive webinar is finally out. I'll put a link in the show notes that you should be able to see on your phone or MP3 player, and I've posted a few links to my social media accounts, so if you're interested, you should be able to find it. If your office does professional development, this is a nice course because you and your coworkers can watch it together. That's all. Thanks for listening.